Welcome to the Natural Health Podcast, where we bring awareness of sustainable health in the business hustle space. The Natural Health Podcast is perfect for the high-performing business-minded individuals who want to work with their biochemistry to achieve success and optimal health. It's Friday, which means it's time for friends sharing facts about health, business, and overall success. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Dave Shirazi. In 2000, Dr. Dave Shirazi rang in the new millennium by graduating from from Howard University College of Dentistry in Washington, D.C. He went on to earn a master's degree in Oriental Medicine from SAMRA University in 2006. In 2007, he received the prestigious fellowship award from the American Academy of Chronofacial Pain, an organization dedicated in the diagnosis and treatment of chronofacial pain and sleep breathing disorders. In 2011 through 2006, Dr. Shirazi was a board-licensed RPSGT, the first and only, so far, dual-degreed dentist and RPSGT. He is the founder of the Bite, Breathe and Balance podcast and study group, a platform dedicated to the multidisciplinary approach to treating chronofacial pain and sleep disorders. Dr. Shirazi is a director of the TMG and Sleep Therapy Center of Los Angeles, a state-of-the-art private practice limited to treatment of TMD, chronofacial pain, sleep, sleep breathing disorders, and chronomandubral <laughs> orthopedics. His practice is part of the TMJ and Sleep Therapy Center International Family, joining the ranks of over 65 global centers. When he isn't saving the world from sleepless nights, Dr. Shirazi enjoys <laughs> hiking and camping, camping in the state parks, traveling and speaking. He's married to the love of his life and has welcomed his first newborn, Maximus. Absolutely loves nature, Dr. Shirazi, and his gorgeous family live in the Santa Monica Mountains to ensure they never miss a moment of the natural beauty a planet has to offer. Welcome mm. to the Natural Health Podcast, Dr. Shirazi. <laughs> that was quite the introduction. <laughs> Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm really Wonderful. appreciate what the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of information that you're giving out. Uh, you know, uh, burnout or corporate burnout, as we call it here, is a real thing is a real thing. I mean, in Japan, it's almost like a way of life. And out here, it's starting to become that way. It's a bit, it's a bit sketchy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely impacts a lot of individuals and not only individuals, it impacts our whole world, our economy, our social life, impacts every single aspect of society these days. Indeed. Yeah, amazing. So you like traveling and camping? Do you have anything planned so far to go and <laughs> explore? No, I, I mean, earlier this year, I went to Mexico, which was lovely. Um, but I haven't traveled in a, properly in a couple of years. As I was telling you, I went to Indonesia a couple of years ago. I went to Greece both times I was speaking and uh, had just a lovely time. Wow, beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to travel and when we get the opportunity to explore new cultures and it'll be interesting in your aspects to see, you know, how sleep is affected in different various parts of the world. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's you, you can see it. It really sort of matters on the level of industrialization, right? So as a country or a people or a city become more and more industrialized, they become busier, they work in the darker hours of the day, they put on weight, and they usually, you know, discover the meaning of the word stress, right? In more rural areas, which is my favorite place to go camping and things like that, where people like, you know, live off the land, or, you know, they're just, they're, they're not in a rush to get anywhere, and they sleep easily. <laughs> now, obesity still affects a lot of them, they, they still have that problem because the food is intertwined a bit. But, um, but by and large, the, the smaller the town in which they come, the more community from which they come, um, they, uh, the better they sleep typically. Yeah, it's interesting. I recently read a study about sleep and the full moon and how the full moon, and that could be taken as light exposure and they looked at rural communities and then they looked at a um, community that had full electricity and it it was it affected them differently you know and like you said you know the more rural you are the more darker things are and how much light affects our sleep and i guess this is what we're going to talk about today too which i'm absolutely excited yeah. about 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's actually very interesting. So in sleep technology, that's when we uh, perform a sleep study on a patient in a lab, right? Where we have like the 20 leads on them. Now, just so you know, the typical sleep technologist is the most, even 18 years old, they are the most conservative, dogmatic group of people that you'll ever meet. Okay. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll make an 80%, an 80 year old MD look like a 16 year old girl in how conservative they are. Right. And if you ask them on full moons, do patients behavior act extra erratic? They will equip all of them equivocally say yes. Right. And it's not due to just the sunlight. I mean, if it was just purely due to the light, then we'd see a circadian disorder shift, uh, although one night wouldn't really do it. But um, there would be a, like a momentary insomnia where it takes them maybe an extra hour to fall asleep or something. No, I'm talking behavior. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there, there's more to the full moon <laughs> than we think. A hundred percent. Definitely. Definitely. But before we go into even more detail and so many exciting questions, I wanted to know a little bit more about you. And I mean, you know, the intro said so many amazing things about yourself, but I wanted to know the key turning points in your journey to get you to where you are now. What decided for you to do what you're doing now? Oh God, this is one of those things where the profession chose me, you know, um, I always say every like, you know, the Chinese medicine degree, the master's in psychology, even the dentistry, all of it was for purely selfish reasons, okay? Like uh, my mom's a dentist, and ever since I was 14, I would work in her office and as an assistant, and I loved it. I loved working with my hands. I loved socializing with people, bonding. Um, And uh, when I was 18, I had a cold. And I have a neurotic Jewish mother who's like, oh, you got to go to the doctor. You have a cold. You got to go. So I went into the doctor and it was this waiting room full of sick people hacking and coughing. I wasn't that sick. And, and so I just left. I came back an hour later. I went in and they gave me antibiotics. And I asked the, and everyone in my family is a doctor or dentist. So I just asked them. I said, so this, this thing is in my nose, right? He goes, yeah. I go, well, if it's in my nose, it's, it's a virus, isn't it? He goes, Probably. I go, well, then why are you giving me antibiotics for my, you know, virus? Because this is almost 30 years ago. And, and he's like, well, the antibiotics will focus on the bugs in your uh, body so that the immune system can focus on the virus. Right? I said, okay, sounds plausible. Told my mom about it. My mom is in that age group where you just do whatever the doctor tells you to do. I took it. I got better. And then I was a bit of a nerd. So I went into the library and I looked it up and I found out even 30 years ago, we knew that was false, (laughs) that you could get antibiotic resistance and there really is no benefit of prescribing, um, you know, antibiotics for a viral disorder other than placebo effect, right? So, uh, So it was then that I made a decision that I would learn something more holistic so that when I had my own family, I could treat them more holistically. Yeah, this was definitely a huge calling. So immediately after dental school, I studied the Chinese medicine. Yeah. And, um, and while we're in the clinic, um, we were treating, you know, TMJ patients and chronic pain and headaches and all that. And I was doing orthodontics. So I was already treating these TMJ patients with appliances. And I thought, well, let's combine the two. And I was getting really good results. Right. And it was much more satisfying than filling teeth, you know, than, than prepping teeth. And I love prepping teeth. I haven't, I, I'm not one of those frustrated dentists that couldn't, that couldn't cope with being a dentist. I love dentistry. Um, but this was way more satisfying to get someone out of chronic pain, to let them sleep properly. It was way more rewarding. And, um, and that's, uh, that's when I became a center. Yeah. And um that's it really. Oh, and, uh, you know, just people just kept coming up to me and saying things like the first appliance I had made for a TMJ patient shortly after dental school wasn't even long. And, uh, the patient said, you know, my migraines are gone. I said, well, good for you. And they said, no, uh, when I take your appliance out, my migraine migraines come back. And I thought, okay, I didn't, I said, okay, I didn't even know they had migraines, you know? And um, 
And then it happened a second time with a different patient within a month or two. And I thought, okay, well, this is weird. And then I asked a bunch of colleagues and they said, yes, there's a strong correlation between TMJ disorders, clenching and migraines. We call it central sensitization. And uh, with tension type headaches is, is really the bruxism and the cervical subluxation. So um, when all of this information came to me, I was like, well, you know, am, am I the only one doing this? Like, <laughs> and I'm not, of course I'm not, but uh, compared to the number of dentists here in the United States, um, there is a little over a thousand, let's say between a thousand and 2000 dentists that limit their practice to pain and sleep. Yeah. There is about 250,000 dentists in the U.S. So it's a very tiny percentage that do what we do. So, you know, with a pretty big population, the, the demand can be strong. So, yeah, wow. Sort of what a journey. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I love how sometimes our parents influence us, not influence us, but sometimes things happen in our childhood that influence us to be like, no, I'm going to go down this way and I'm going to try and figure out the bottom of this. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my sister actually went and got her CPA or CFO degree. Um, because, you know, working in my mom's office, she knew she was definitely not going to do anything <laughs> in the health sciences. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's, that's amazing. And now you're here today, you know, helping mm. so many individuals in such a niche environment. And it's thanks to people like yourself that people are getting to the root cause of what's actually happening inside of their body and they can fix it or get to the bottom of it, which is absolutely amazing. We do our best. Yeah. So on, look, on the Natural Health Podcast, we talk a lot about success and optimal health. I wanted to kind of get an understanding of what that looks like for you. What, what's the definition of success mean to you? And then on top of that, the definition of optimal health, what, what does that look like for you? So when, it, when you say success, do you mean like success in the outcomes of my work or success in like a financial kind of context what do you which context yeah. do you mean so so some people say i want to be successful so for you if you think you know dave is going to be successful mm -hmm. what does that success look like for you and it could be family oh, yeah. it could be business it could be financial health anything yeah. along those lines yeah so for me uh success would be helping the most number of people I can every single day in getting them out of pain and helping them with their sleep. Cause I'll get to the sleep in just a minute. Um, I really enjoy my time with family. My son's eight now. So, you know, he, he's grown up. Uh, so hanging out as much as we can and being in nature, like not this weekend, but last weekend we went to Sequoia, which is my favorite national park to go to. I think it's stunning. Uh, I'm just a different person when I'm there. It's, I just absolutely love it. So being with nature, to me, that is being successful. And with health, I know it's good. it sounds cliche, but it's true that sleep is more important for your health than diet and exercise, right? It's like we get over 90% of our growth hormone from one stage of sleep, right? I hear all these podcasts and Joe Rogan this and you know, some workout guru that will say, oh, and if you do intermittent fasting and if you work out right before you go to sleep and an empty stomach and do this, you'll increase your growth hormone by 1.2%. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Why don't you just get a good night's sleep and get all of it? <laughs> right? And, and the mental health aspect is the REM sleep, right? With REM, we get uh, our mental and emotional processing done. We get our memory consolidation, and we're even finding out in the last five, 10 years, we're finding out that the lymphatic system in the brain is clearing the beta amyloid plaques during REM, right? So there's just so much going on during sleep that's so important, right? And then the other aspect is when patients take medication. So uh, almost every psychotropic medication I know of you know, SSRIs, whatever, whatever. I, I don't know any that don't affect sleep. And the majority of them, to my, with my experience, um, actually block REM sleep, which I don't understand. <laughs> if, if they promoted more REM, <laughs> maybe they'd get actually more work done. Yeah, wow. That just blows my mind. But 
I guess for the audience to understand what you just said, I think it's mm-hmm. important for us to understand and get an understanding of what sleep is. Just a basic mm-hmm. understanding of what sleep. I know we can sit here for hours and hours and talk about yeah, what sleep <laughs> is, but I mean, yeah. just a, you know, an overview of what sleep is and why we sleep to just to educate the audience a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, just the why we sleep, if we think about it in terms of evolution, um, if you think about it, when we sleep, we, by the way, we're, we're always horizontal when we sleep. No one sleeps standing up, right? And we sleep when it's dark, typically. That's when we're designed to sleep. And in prehistoric times, that means we are most vulnerable when we sleep, right? So you would think that this behavior that we do one third out of every single day, at least, uh, when it's, we're most susceptible to attack, when we're laying on the ground, when it's dark, would be the last evolutionary thing that the body would want to keep. But it's so important, so relevant for our survival that we've kept it. And, and it's part, a mandatory part of, a, of who we are. Yeah. So, so, the state of sleep is a state of consciousness we call unconsciousness where we go through these stages these four stages uh stage one which is just light sleep as soon as you close your eyes you go into alpha which is the lightest stage of sleep and then we've got uh the next stage of sleep stage two which is you're sort of you know you're a little bit deeper than light but you're nowhere near rem that's actually the least understood state of sleep and then we have delta which is where we get all our growth hormone and it's the deepest layer, the lowest frequency of our brain waves. And then we have REM. And as I said, that's where we do our mental emotional consolidation. And the Delta and the REM in adults should encompass 25% of our sleep each, right? For newborns, Delta and REM encompass 100% of their sleep, nearly 100%. They just go delta rem, delta rem, delta rem. And, you know, for obvious reasons, we need the growth hormone, right, as we're growing, and we need the rem to process our new environment, right? You know, when we developed a consciousness, we were in utero, and basically what we had was a, you know, an environment where we were breathing water, and we were listening to our mother's heartbeat in addition to our own. And then we come out and we, we start using all of these new senses that we never had before. So we need, that's a lot of mental processing. That's a lot of computing that needs to be done. Um, I mean, there we have why, why kids cry. I mean, they're just sitting there like, you know, what is this? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we have, as you know, a circadian rhythm where our cortisol peaks in the morning and it drops in the evening to support us being awake and to support us being asleep. Um, is there something more specific you wanted to know about sleep? Yeah. So in regards to, I just wanted to people understand the audience that's listening understood when you're talking about REM sleep, what REM sleep is and non-REM sleep. But I guess you explained mm-hmm. the stages, the stage yes. one, two, three, four. I love that. And you explained what percentage of time we spend in there and the dangers of, I guess, the dangers of missing out on some of those or spending a short amount of time in such stage of stage three, the deep sleep, sorry, stage mm-hmm. four, the deep sleep, or in missing out on the REM sleep, I guess, if you don't hit that deep sleep, because you have to go as an adult, from my understanding, you have to go through all the stages to hit REM sleep, unless you're a baby and you go (laughs) go into REM straight away. So for individuals, if they miss out on REM sleep, what can happen? Oh, yeah. And what causes them to not spend so much time in REM sleep? Right. So not having any sleep whatsoever is associated with death. It's, it's, it's essential. Right. Um, I think people start hallucinating after the second or third day, um, but it's not a, a safe mental state to be in. Um, I, you know, I don't know if any studies, um, they, they may exist, I don't know. I don't know if any studies exist on patients with no REM sleep that aren't on medications, right? Mm. Because being on medications, especially psychotropic medication, changes behavior. The, mo- the most common behavior we see on patients with psychotropic, on psychotropic meds, especially long-term, is indifference, right? They're, 
it doesn't, so this is why I say it doesn't uh, directly resolve the depression or the anxiety. It just makes us less reactive to what was causing us to have depression and anxiety before. Whether it was a PTSD or a sad memory or a fear of the future, whatever it is, they, the, a lot of these meds are pretty much just making us indifferent. That's such an interesting point that you're bringing up right there. I think this is key. I think it's huge. I think it's huge. And, you know, there was this big expose on 60 Minutes, and they won't air it anymore, um, where they went to uh, Harvard, the uh, Harvard Medical School, the Department of Research, and they asked them about, well, what do you think about psychotropic medication? And they said, well, in looking at the published and unpublished studies, we can say that they don't work any better than placebo, right? And he said this so nonchalantly, like he wasn't, like he was saying, well, we keep the spoons on the right side of the drawer. Like he didn't say that nonchalantly. And of course, the journalist was like, there's millions of people on it. What do we do? And he goes, well, we inform our doctors to prescribe placebo. And that, that was his crazy solution <laughs> to, to the problem. So... I understand there are those that need it, you know, they're, you know, when they came about the American, here in America, the American Academy of uh, Psychiatric Medicine, they used to do talk therapy. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but out here they would talk and they would discuss the patient's issues and they would ask them questions like, so do you think that makes sense to feel this way? <laughs> you know, they would ask them questions. And when the pharmaceutical industry was banging on their door, they didn't want to let them in. They're like, listen, we don't want to drug up our patients. We want to help our patients. And they just kept sticking their foot in the door. And they said, listen, the point of these medications are only for those patients that are so out there that you can't even have a conversation with them. You bring them down, you have the eye-to-eye -eye conversation, and then you wean them off, right? And, of course, we know how successful... Um, just trying to think of our bipolar um, lithium is, for example. So, you know, they're like, okay, fine. Let's come on in, bring your drugs. And they did, and it completely changed the industry. The industry is now almost every psychiatrist I know is a what's called a psychopharmacologist, where they make a really accurate diagnosis of what's wrong with them, like what they have mentally. And then they give them a drug for it or a cocktail of drugs. There's very little uh, CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, done anymore. There's very little talk therapy done anymore. It's usually, so how are you doing now that you're on your meds? <laughs> yeah, and, interesting uh, on that point is yeah. there was a study recently that came out and it spoke about panic attacks in particular. Mm. And the best treatment for panic attacks was CBD, what you just said, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that was one of the best treatments for it. So it mm. goes hand in hand with what you're just saying now there is an actually bringing it back to sleep mm. there is a huge study from the jama journal of the american medical association they had 1400 subjects and they took uh they took these patients between the age of 30 and 60 and they had them fill out a Zung's depression questionnaire. I don't know if you're familiar, but patient fills out how depressed they are and they get a score from I feel sad thoughts sometimes during the day to every day I consider suicide, like the whole range. And then they did sleep studies on them, PSG, in-lab studies. And 100%, damn near 100% of them had sleep apnea. But the, the telling part was the line of the severity of their depression and the severity of their sleep apnea were identical. They were on top of each other the whole way through. So we don't call that a coincidence in, in statistics. So since then, of course, we have, I don't know, I mean, literally thousands of studies on patients that were treated with either CPAP or oral appliance therapy and that had psychosocial issues, that their psychosocial issues were either resolved or they, um, uh, they were greatly reduced and a lot of them went off of medication. Wow. And when we understand sleep, that would make sense. That would just be normal. We'd be like, yes, of course it's going to affect yeah. it. But you yeah. mentioned a key word there, sleep apnea. And I would love to talk about 
some sleep disorders. I want to know what, you know, sleep is such a huge issue. What would be some of the top most common sleep disorders? Well, insomnia is first, you know, next is sleep apnea. And, and we can even break down insomnia and sleep apnea into subgroups. Um, and then we've got what's called REM behavior, REM sleep behavior disorder, where those are the people that sleepwalk and sleep talk and all that. There's actually been a couple of cases in the United States where, where people have murdered people while in sleep REM behavior disorder, and they didn't go to jail because they didn't have any memory of it. They didn't know what, like one of them killed his in-laws with a knife in the middle of the night. And they, and he woke up and he was covered in blood and, and he called the police. He goes, I think something bad happened. And I think I did it. Right. And he had no idea. I mean, he was in like, he went into a horrible depression afterwards, but he just, they did sleep studies on him multiple times and he definitely had REM sleep behavior disorder. Right. So it's a, and, and that's a very tricky thing to control, right? There are people that like punch their bed partner in their sleep and they, they'll actually go to sleep with boxing gloves, you know, for that, right? There, there's, there's so many sleep disorders. Um, but the insomnia, there, we say three types, um, primary, secondary, and tertiary. Primary is when it's just hard to fall asleep takes you more than 30 minutes. We call it sleep latency. Uh, secondary insomnia is where you can fall asleep easily, but you wake up one or more times throughout the night. And tertiary insomnia is when you wake up around 4 o'clock, 3.30, whatever it is, 5, and you can't go back to sleep even though you want to. Okay? Um, and tertiary insomnia can be a circadian rhythm disorder as well. So a circadian rhythm disorder... <laughs> is, you know, we have a circadian rhythm in our head that determines when should we be awake and when should we be asleep. And that's associated with the amount of sunlight that comes into our eyes, right? Now, evolutionarily, again speaking, our eyeballs cannot di di differ the difference between a photon of light that comes from the sun and one that comes from a monitor or a phone, Yeah. So when we're staring at our phones, you know, well into the night, you know, what are we doing? We're, we're just bombarding our brain with too much light. And that can, that can shift someone out of their, or their natural circadian rhythm, and they have a hard time falling asleep. And, and due to habit, they still wake up at the same time because they got to go to work or what have you. So that, and there are solutions for that. Um, and sleep apnea, uh, the most common type is called obstructive. And that's when we stop breathing for 10 seconds or more, have shallow breathing that causes 3% or more of oxygen desaturation, and what's called upper airway resistance syndrome when we don't hold our breath for 10 seconds, we don't lose oxygen, but we, we snort in our sleep and it kicks us out of either delta or REM into a lighter sleep. Right. So, and just, and we call that an arousal when you're kicked out of a deep stage of sleep for over 10 seconds. And if I had to hazard a guess as to why patients with psychosocial issues had resolution or improvement in their psychosocial issues from treatment of sleep apnea, my number one reason would be because of uh, reduced or eliminated uh, arousals in their sleep. And that would make total sense. Yeah. And then we have another phenomenon called central sleep apnea, just 10 to 15% of the time. That's when our brain shuts off and tells us not to breathe. Yeah. So and this is something that's very, well, just so you know, sleep apnea in the medical literature is like, what, 40 years old, right? And treatment of it with CPAP is even newer, and actually, it was, you, you know, the use of a CPAP was discovered by an Australian. It, it really was. He took a vacuum cleaner and put the, the motor in reverse, and he molded a mask to the patient's face every night, and he put this pressure up their nose in order to open up their airway. That's how we owe um, CPAP to him. There you go. <laughs> I can't think of his name. It's Henry something, I believe. Um, but with central sleep apnea, uh, because there's so much you know, physicians and the literature have not caught up yet. 
Um, it's believed that it's iatrogenically caused by morphine drug abuse, right? Like narcotic drug abuse. And that is true. You, that can happen, okay? But in my experience, the vast majority of the time, it happens to people that have blocked nasal passages, right? Because we have a physio... So we need not only a, a high level of oxygen, but we need we have a small, narrow window of entitled CO2 that we need to have, like usually between 35 and 45 millimeters of mercury. And when we mouth breathe, because our nose is stuffed up, we get rid of too much entitled CO2. And you have to realize we have like what, over a thousand CO2 receptors in our body and like one or two oxygen receptors. So CO2 must be significant, you know, in its uh, need. So what the brain does, it makes an executive decision to shut off breathing so that because the metabolism is still going on and the CO2 is still bu builds back up. And once it reaches a certain threshold that it deems appropriate, then it carries on with breathing. So central sleep apnea events could last a couple minutes. They can be, they can be quite long. Yeah, and I've seen a few YouTube clips on them and the individuals, how they act and how they sleep is extraordinary with their head back and then the jerking and the breathing. So it definitely impacts a lot of people's lives. But I love that you mentioned the nasal cavity, the pathway, the na nasal. And I guess critical. it's absolutely critical. And I guess some people are born with obstruction there. And I guess some people, what, what could cause obstructions through there? Many things. Issues. So, so, okay, well, I'll get to so many of them. So talking about the bony interferences. So when we look at skulls prior to the Industrial Revolution, everyone had huge turbinates space and tiny, tiny sinuses, had a wide palate. All their teeth were there relatively straight, right? No orthodontist was born yet, okay? And they had about that much space behind each um, uh, wisdom tooth, right? And what did they do? They breastfed for three to five years, right? The palate being the floor of the nose, as the tongue teaches the palate on the shape it should be, the palate widens and flattens, okay? So now what we see in modern man is a very narrow you know, they're supposed to be wide and flat, but now it's kind of narrow and arched. And the ethmoid bone, which is the nasal septum, not the ethmoid bone, sorry, the vomer, um, becomes kind of crunched when it tries to like stretch out between the palate and the ethmoid bone. So it becomes crooked. So another thing is when you have a nice wide flat palate, you have usually a straight vomer, right? Septum. So that's one reason. Uh, two, we have foods that are highly inflammatory that, as you know, the IgG reaction causes the nasal mucosa to swell up, right? And um, just having that is enough to, you know, is enough to block up the nose. Yeah. And of course, we can have infections and, and et cetera. You know, sometimes the challenging part with sinus infections is uh, if it's not addressed, the mucus and the infection become so viscous in the sinus that it can't drain. And that's why it needs to either be surgically drained or you need to lavage the bejesus out of it. Mm, mm. So essentially, yeah. we are made to breathe through our nose. That's Absolutely. correct. Absolutely. In and out? Correct. In and out. The only time you're supposed to use your mouth is to speak. Right? Yes. So that means in uh, including exercising, right? So as you know, like the New Zealand All Blacks, like the rugby team, which is like very, very highly rated, um, you know, a lot of them are Aboriginal um, in nature and they, their regiment includes duct taping their mouths and running, carrying boulders, you know, slamming into each other <laughs> and doing their training. Right. But they do it with their mouths duct taped so that they breathe through their nose. Right. Breathing through their nose is absolutely critical. Absolutely yeah. critical. And I love that you mentioned in and out because I've mm -hmm. heard a lot of individuals 
um, mention and talk about breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. But I guess that's when you're releasing a lot more of the carbon dioxide and then an imbalance happening and all these other yeah. things that can occur. Yeah, I mean, one or two times, you know, in meditation isn't going to cause a problem, right? Um, but, you know, when athletes notice that they do better endurance, better power when they um, nasal breathe, they, they can see, like one thing uh, that a, a, a trick that athletes can do, let's say they are a sprinter, right? Uh, what I recommend for them when they're training is to do as much as they can through their nose. Like, in fact, try to do all of it through their nose, right? And usually what happens is they start strong and then the last half, they teeter out. And then during the actual competition, I tell them just breathe through your nose as much as you can. And usually about three quarters or two thirds of the way through, they kind of lose it and they have to go to mouth breathing right? Which is fine because they're only going to do it for a few more seconds, right? But when they do that, they, they constantly outperform themselves each time, right? So, so yeah, the nasal breathing is, is huge. Humans are supposed to breathe with their nose and eat with their mouth and talk with their mouth. That's it. And said, I couldn't agree more with you. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that and put and you know, put it into the myth of and debunking all the myths about how we're supposed to breathe, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I absolutely love that. But I wanted to also talk about, um, you know, grinding our teeth and clenching our jaws mm -hmm. and all those things that a lot of us individuals do. And most of the things that we get to help us with it doesn't really help. And it's just the mouth guard that puts on. It just helps our teeth not get so damaged, I guess. That's, you're you're 100% right. So why, what, why do people, you know, grind their teeth or clench their jaws? And what can be done about that? Okay, so the answer is no one knows in terms of why. Like for example, when we transition from wake to sleep and from different stages of sleep, we tap our teeth together like this. We don't know why, <laughs> but there's some sort of connection involved. So what we can tell you, what we do know so far is that clenching of our teeth is caused by an autonomic nervous system disorder or not disorder, an autonomic nervous system challenge, right? So for example, we know roughly 50% of the time when, especially when someone has that upper airway resistance issue, uh, people clench while their airflow is down. And when they clench, they tighten up their upper pharyngeal muscles and put some tone back in their tongue. And once the airway has been restored, then they stop clenching right? The other 50% of the time we say stress to the autonomic nervous system. But stress doesn't have to mean emotional stress. I mean, these are kind of stressy times, right? They're kind of uncertain times. So people are clenching just for that reason alone. But um, if someone has an IgG food intolerance, and they go and they have a slice of pizza, and they've got the gluten and dairy intolerance, they're going to clench their teeth as well right? Even children with parasites in their gut are going to clench their teeth. I mean, we, we, we just know this. So for me, it's about, okay, let's have their physician order a sleep study, see if they have sleep apnea, and is that causing it? Um, if so, our appliances will be more directed towards snoring and sleep apnea and upper airway resistance syndrome. If it's more uh, not being airway related, but more autonomic nervous stress, then I make an appliance that ad adapts to their clenching and moves their jaw to where I want them and helps reduce the ability to clench fully. Yeah. Um, th this, is a, this is important because there were studies that have been done. One was out of University of Toronto where they, they took patients that had sleep apnea that could not tolerate the CPAP. And they also clenched their teeth and they were given night guards, okay? Just the plastic, like you said, that you know helps the gnashing of the dentistry and the natural tooth structure. And what they found was between 40 and 60%, depending on which study you look at, let's say half of the subjects, their apnea got way worse with the night guard. And the more severe their apnea, the more severe it got with the night guard. And we postulate, of course, we can never say we know, no one's got a barcode right on their forehead that we can just scan. 
But um, what we do know is that the jaw hinges, right? The first few millimeters of opening, it rotates. And then when we open wider, it translates like this. So it rotates and translates. So that means the first few millimeters of opening is a rotation and it rotates backwards, right? So you put someone in a night guard that raises their bite a few millimeters and what does it do? It rotates their jaw back, right? And then, you know, you sleep on your back, which is when clenching and sleep apnea are both worse when we're sleeping supine. And then you clench and now your jaw's fallen even further back. I mean, it's just gonna make your airway worse. Yeah, wow, that's absolutely, that, that's mind-blowing. That's, that's just mind-blowing. But you did mention sleeping in positions and sleeping on your back does mm -hmm. these things and sleeping on your stomach, sleeping on your side. We've read so many things, sleeping on your left side is the best thing this way and you get the most out of it because of the organs and so forth. Do you have any input in regards to sleeping positions? Okay, so most of that is BS, okay, just, just so you know. It's very natural for people to rotisserie, like every hour they switch from one side to the other. Uh, the only times I have a conversation about positional sleep with my patients is one, if they're apneic, I, I encourage not sleep. I mean, and of course the sleep study will show if they, if they have more apnea on their back or not, which is usually the case, but not everyone. So if they have positional apnea, then I'll tell them, okay, you got to avoid sleeping on your back. You got to wear the shirt with the tennis balls or the little belt around your neck or around your waist. Um, and if they're, let's say, obese or morbidly obese, I'll invite them to start their sleep on their right side. When we sleep on our left side and we're obese, we're using our fat and our mass to put more pressure on the heart. Because the part already on obese people has to work so hard to get the oxygen and nutrients out to all the organs and brain that that just adds a, a certain other level of, of issue to the heart. So sleeping on our right is, is, is an issue. Yeah, it's, I like that you put another busting, another myth. <laughs> I love well, that. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't pretend that I know everything on <laughs> the be-all, end-all of all of sleep knowledge, but that's, that's been my observation. Mm. When, when people make very generalized things about left and right sleep, mm. when we organically turn, okay, it's not, I mean, I mean I, I'm sorry, it just doesn't sound intelligent to say that left people, people should sleep on one side, uh, when they, they, they know they're going to turn onto the other side in an hour, you know, <laughs> and then 100%. back again. <laughs> so, but, but that's, that's just my thought on it. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love that. So look, sleep has been linked to like diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. What do you think is the link and what, and what other things has, you know, minimal sleep or sleep disturbances or not having yeah. optimal sleep affected? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, we know that certain disorders, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, can be caused by sleep apnea. And we assume it's because of the inflammation that's kicked up. The inflammation you get from sleep apnea is out of control. Okay? In children, there's literature that shows that when their TNF-alpha, which, as you know, is a marker for inflammation, when it's over 2,000, you know the kid has sleep apnea. You don't even need to do a sleep study. That's how, that's how bad it affects us. Um, what else did I want to talk about? That? Oh, yeah. And, and, of course, we see that when they resolve their sleep apnea with uh, CPAP or oral appliance therapy, we see a reduction or elimination in the type 2 diabetes and their hypertension. Right? And, again, all of this inflammation, in, from my point of view, is being caused by the arousal much more so than the lack of oxygen or the holding of the breath. Mm, that's an interesting point. Yes, the inflammation. Mm -hmm. and, it's and the reason I say that is there was a large study done in the Cleveland Clinic where they took bed partners and did sleep studies on them. And let's, you know, just for ease of conversation, let's say it was the men that had the sleep apnea and the women that didn't. Obviously, some women had it and the husbands didn't, but let's just say generalizing. Uh, they found that the men that had sleep apnea, they had about 27 arousals an hour, okay? The bed partner 
with no sleep apnea had an average of 21 arousals an hour because the person sitting next to them is either a freight train or is very, very quiet, which means they're choking, right? So, so of these, they had like 1,100 subjects in this study. Uh, they whittled it down to 150 people that stuck with the CPAP, <laughs> right? And then they asked the wives, they didn't do sleep studies on the wives, but they asked them, how would you characterize your life since your husband has been wearing the CPAP? And their responses was, oh, my mood is so improved. I don't have headaches anymore. I've, you know, my mental facilities are better. I have more tolerance. Everything in their lives improved by wow. having their bed partners, you know, silenced essentially, you know, so that they didn't keep interrupting them. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting because it doesn't just impact yeah. the individual that has it, but also the individual that's with them. So one thing that I wanted to talk about is circadian rhythm. You've mentioned a little bit about it. So, you know, we're supposed to be asleep when it's dark and we're supposed to be awake when it's sun and we have cortisol and so forth and melatonin mm -hmm. and things coming mm -hmm. into play. So what role does circadian rhythm have in our sleep? And when the circadian rhythm is disrupted, what role does that have in our sleep? So, so like you said so brilliantly, the circadian rhythm induces wakefulness and sleepiness. When it's disturbed, it impacts the number of cycles we get in our sleep. So we're still technically getting some sleep. Usually people with circadian rhythm disorder, uh, they still sleep somewhat, you know, three, four, five, maybe six hours. But they're not getting all the good stages in their sleep. They're usually falling asleep much later, and which means that the sunlight is introduced much earlier than they're ready to wake up, right? So this impacts the severity of our sleep. So, so we have a phenomenon in our brain called alpha intrusion, which means when we're in delta, like deep sleep, uh, so when we're in delta, we are completely out, okay? And our body's repairing and it's getting growth hormone is being passed on. If there is a concern that we are not safe in our sleep, our brain momentarily will jump out of delta and go into alpha, okay? And we'll have a momentary awareness of our bedroom environment, okay? Make sure we're safe, okay? <laughs> and then we go back into delta. Okay. And alpha intrusion is one of the hallmarks of fibromyalgia, for example. It's a hypervigilance. Yeah. But if, if you're trying to sleep and it's 6 a.m. and you want to sleep for three, four more hours uh, and the light comes in through the shade on your face, your brain goes into this mode of what the hell is happening to my safe sleep environment? You, you understand where I'm coming from? A hundred percent. And that kicks us out of these deeper stages of sleep and therefore the number of cycles we get, right? So we'll have, you know, between four and six cycles a night of stage one, two, three, RAM, one, two, three, RAM, one, two, three, RAM. And, and incidentally, the first half of sleep is supposed to be a bit more delta one and two than REM. And the second half of sleep is supposed to be way more REM sleep. Right. So when we have a circadian disorder, that's, you know, usually it's people missing out on the latter half of their sleep, which is when we need, where we're getting like at least half of our, more than half of our REM sleep. And our hormone production and our brain uh, and mm -hmm. our system, detail, everything, like it's just absolutely key, which causes so much more inflammation, which causes so many yeah. more issues with ourselves. So yeah. that's so interesting that you mentioned that, that you've made the link that, that perfectly clear for the audience to understand, the link between circadian rhythm disorders and not getting that later stage and how mm -hmm. key, you've mentioned at the start of the episode, how key those later stages are for us. It is. And, and you so brilliantly followed up with uh, our hormones and all the other chemicals that we need, because when our body is going through that on a regular basis, we go, our autonomic nervous system goes to fight or flight, which means our hormones shift into heart, fight and flight. And the priorities of the body chemically, physiologically shift from rest and restore to 
uh, well, we need to put this whole, you know, mental health and, and physical health aside. So right now it's about survival, right? And even though, you know, you're, you're sitting on a beach in, in Melbourne and, and you're doing fine, the, the physiology is thinking that this is DEFCON 1 and we need to do something about it right away. Yeah, 100%. Definitely, definitely. Look, I think you're, you've been so amazing with so much information that you've shared with us. And I bet you the audience is like, okay, so I know what sleep is. I know how my normal sleep is supposed to look like. And I know what can happen if I don't get those all those stages of sleep and don't stay in those stages of sleep as much as I'm supposed to. And that sleep apnea is so much more common and sleeping disorders than I actually ever thought. Mm-hmm. But th- the question that I have now is everyone's like, well, what do I do? <laughs> the question is, how can I ensure that my sleep is as optimal as possible and ensure that I get into my, get into all those stages? So, so the first thing is, if you're concerned, get a sleep study. That's the biggest thing. I cannot stress that enough. Um, there is more data in a sleep study than any blood test, no matter how thorough of a blood test, there's way more data in a sleep study. Two, um, we have protocols called sleep hygiene, where, where we recommend that your bedroom always be dark, slightly cool, okay? That your bedroom is only used for sleep and sex, okay? You don't conduct your business in there, you don't have the kids congregate in there. Um, you don't have arguments in there, you know. Um, you know, that whole adage of not going to bed upset is a really good adage. You know, leave the bedroom, go to the dining room, go to the living room, discuss, you know, go outside, discuss, you know, your issues, try to get a resolution, or at least agree to resolve it tomorrow or something, and then go back into the bedroom and sleep. Th- those three things are the biggest things you can do, right? Um, We want our brains to be used to using ketones instead of glucose. So with the, we call it the standard American diet, SAD, you know, here, which is so based in carbohydrates and is so harmful that uh, the brains gets adapted to run on glucose and you can actually run out of glucose in the middle of the night and wake up. You know, that's a real thing, right? So with patients, so when patients choose to do uh, ketogenic uh, diets, usually vegetarian-based, but ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, my recommendation is that their window of eating is between 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. And before they go to bed, they, they make sure they eat something fatty, whether it's nuts or, you know, butter or whatever, uh, or oils, and that will easily carry them through through the night. Yeah, I love that. So in regards to a sleep study, do they have to get in, in touch with a specialist that does these? Do mm-hmm. they have to go in a lab? Do they do it at home? So they have both things. So in my office, we, we offer both in-lab and in-home studies, right? But for me, the, the in-lab is predominantly based in research. You know, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I have a private practice. I don't take insurance. So for me, practicing, um, you know, this like five or six other centers around me, they all take insurance. I'm constantly sending them out to go get that done. But for, in, for the question of should I do in-home or should I do lab? My answer to my patients is, if you're the kind of person that when you go on vacation and you're staying at a hotel and it takes you a day or two to get used to the bed, to get used to the hotel room, if you're that person, do the in-home study, at least for the first one, and you can have a second one in lab later. Um, But if you're the kind of person that it doesn't matter. You're on vacation. You could travel a 10,000 mile trip, sit in that, get in that hotel bed and conk out. Then I recommend doing it in a lab. Okay. Because we're going to get way more data, right? In a, in a in-home study, we have five leads of data in a lab. We have over 20, right? If, if your issue is insomnia, then I would recommend doing an in-lab study because, we get way more data for brainwave activity in a lab than we do at home studies. 
Right? Yeah. So I, I'm very like neutral. You know, usually there's a bias. Like, so like, for example, a lot of dentists that treat sleep apnea with oral appliances, all they want is the home sleep study because it's quick, easy, gives you the bottom line that they want to know. Uh, and the sleep labs uh, hate the concept of a <laughs> home sleep study because they know that an in-lab study is the best and that's where they make their bread and butter, right? But from someone that's got both, I can tell you there is definitely optimal times for each. Right? I'm not against home sleep studies. I'm not against in-lab studies. There's a time and a place for all of them. Yeah, definitely. So you've given us some absolutely amazing practical tips that we can take into place to improve our sleep, breathing through our nose, a dark room, a cool room, and anything along those lines, and even running a sleep study to ensure if you, mm-hmm. if you do have some concerns. But essentially, like you said at the start, sleep is so key, absolutely key for anything and could be linked to most diseases that are out there and most health issues. So when that is perfect, this has a huge flow and effect onto our life. So to finish off, um, I ask all my guests, as this is a natural health podcast, what would be your best kept natural health hack? And that means you might do something every day. You might do it weekly, monthly. To me, it might be like from what you said, it might be nose breathing. But what would be your health hack for sleep? You know, honestly, um, for me, it's a mental health hack is I do a regular exercise where I do a mental check of, you know, what is my mood? What is my thinking patterns like? And then I ask myself, is that a real thing? Or is it actually very neutral? And I decided to, to give it a meaning behind it for my own biases and my own programming, right? So the answer is, it's always neutral. <laughs> okay, the, it, Every single thing that happens to us, for us, because of us, is a neutral event until we say it's bad or good, right? There's definitely what we want and what we don't want. That I'm not taking that away. What I'm saying is when we judge something as good, bad, or ugly, um, I allow myself the space to choose how I want to feel about something. Wonderful. Right? I and, love that. And, I love that. And I've, and I've been able to actually take a negative belief and turn it into a positive belief. And I try to do it as much as possible. Like I went to the grocery store uh, yesterday, was it? Yeah, yesterday. And I got like a lot of food and I said, hey, can you double bag it? They said, sure. I said, I have to, you know, my driveway is very uphill. And they're like, oh yeah, that's very hard. And and yeah, definitely double bag it. I, said, I hope you get, you, you know, you're okay with that. And, and I said, well, actually, and then I talked about the New Zealand All Blacks and I talked about um, some American football players. What they would do is they would, they had like a hill in their backyard and they would carry stones up the hill. And it made them extremely powerful uh, because they would try to run faster and faster up this hill. And it made them extremely powerful because one, you know, when you're running down a field, you're not carrying a giant stone, but it also allowed them to absorb tackles because it wasn't just their legs, their whole upper body, everything was, was taught while they were doing it. So I said, I go, I choose to think about it as I'm getting a, a you know, New Zealand all black, you know, <laughs> American football touchdown. <laughs> you know, thing as I go up, they're like, that sounds great. <laughs> they were all smiling afterwards. I said, great. I hope they remember that. And, and, and I absolutely you know, love that. So that's, that's my hack really that, that goes so, you know, so much further than, than anything else in my opinion. A hundred percent. So tomorrow you're going to see me. I'm going to be going up a hill with, with taping my mouth, nose breathing, carrying weights. <laughs> well, don't start with the weight. Don't start with the weight. Do don't it without the weight first, <laughs> then add the weight later. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on a natural health podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if people want to get in touch with you or find out a little bit more, what would be the best way? So for me, they can go directly to my website, uh, TMJ Conejo, or better yet, TMJLA.com. And if people in Australia and New Zealand watching your show want to find a center like mine, there's like a half a dozen of them in Australia. 
There is a website called tmjtherapycenter.com, and center is spelled the European way, not the American way, right? Um, you can do a search for uh, a doctor like me that does TMJ therapy and, and sleep apnea treatment with oral appliances, um, and they they have them from Perth to Sydney to Melbourne to to Auckland, New Zealand. You know, they we've got a we've got about sixty five or more centers throughout the world now, and we have many in uh, Australia. That's amazing. That's absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to put all that detail in the show notes so people can access that, including your website and so forth. But thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Natural Health Podcast. And remember, the missing link between failure and success is your health. 